Welcome to CUCC's Sermons for Everyone. No matter who you are or where you find yourself on life's journey, we're glad you've tuned in, and we hope you find meaning in this week's sermon. So how are you all liking the book of Judges? It's a good read, right? We've been at this for eight weeks now. I mean, last week's judge, Jephthah, sacrificing his daughter because of a ridiculous bet. What on earth, right? Who knew this stuff was in our Bible? Honestly, I couldn't come up with a good way around that story so I went on vacation. (laughs) But seriously, Pastor Pat, you did an excellent job. You did an excellent job with that story and we're so grateful for your ministry. All right, now don't get too excited, but today we'll be introduced to the final judge, Samson. But before we go there, we need to set them up a little bit. As you've noticed, the cycle of the judges that we've been following has taken a turn for the worst, right? The whole thing feels like it's spiraling out of control. So, so much so that the, the last two weeks, there was little to no mention of God in the stories at all. Abimelech, the thorn bush of a king who's, who's killed by a woman at a tower. Jephthah, the discarded half-brother who gambled with his daughter's life and lost. It's decades of Israel's history where things are an absolute mess and everyone seems to have forgotten about God. And as dark and violent as some of these stories have been, we're, we're also oddly aware that, that people today are capable of some of the same sort of darkness. Right, the same sort of violence. Sometimes we read headlines in the news and we just can't wrap our minds around how narcissistic and how heinous people can be. And we wonder, how do you recover from that as a society? How do we ever make things right? How do we ever set things straight? And while doing all of it, the book of Judges has been building a narrative of redemption, a widely held understanding of of how God worked and and how God makes things right. When stuff hits the fan and people have reached rock bottom over and over, we read that God reads up a leader, a judge, a prophet, an anointed one, a savior. That's the flow of this story, and that's how redemption seemed to work. Today's chapter starts by telling us that because of their evil ways, the Israelites were oppressed by the Philistines for 40 years. 40 years, it's a long time, and it's a symbolic time, right? For those of you that have been around this book for a while, you might remember Noah and his family stayed on the ark for 40 days and 40 nights. Moses fasted for 40 days. The Israelites wandered in the wilderness for 40 days years. Ezekiel, we'll get there in like four years, I think. Ezekiel laid on his side for 40 days. Goliath mocks the Israelites for 40 days. Jesus is tempted in the wilderness for 40 days. It's a symbolic number, 
that often designates a time of, of testing, of trial. And so for 40 years, the people are tested and tried under the Philistines. And then after a couple chapters without any reference to God, God shows up. Seemingly as a last ditch effort to rescue the Israelites, God shows up and prepares for a chosen one to lead. Let's read from Judges 13. So we'll start in verse 1. Again, the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord. So the Lord delivered them into the hands of the Philistines for 40 years. A certain man of Zorah named Manoah from the clan of Danites had a wife who was childless, unable to give birth. The angel of the Lord appeared to her and said, You are barren and childless, but you are going to become pregnant and give birth to a son. Now see to it that you drink no wine or other fermented drink, and that you do not eat anything unclean. You will become pregnant and have a son whose head is never to be touched by a razor, because the boy is to be a Nazarite, dedicated to God from the womb. He will take lead in delivering Israel from the hands of the Philistines. Friends, it almost feels like we've heard this story before, right? The, the barren woman who gives birth to a leader, a savior. Abraham and Sarah, unable to have children, and an angel visits her, tells her she's going to have a son and that she's going to become the mother of nations. Her son, Isaac, marries Rebekah, who is said to be barren, and they give birth to twins, Isaac and Jacob. Jacob marries Rachel, who is said to be barren for years, and finally gives birth to Joseph, who rescues the family from, from famine. And we could jump ahead to the New Testament, Elizabeth being visited by an angel, giving birth to John the Baptist, Mary being visited by an angel and giving birth to Jesus. It's a theme. It's a motif. This miraculous birth, it's it's repeated throughout the Bible. We know this story. We've read this one before. This is how God works. This is, this is how God makes things right. How God rescues, saves, redeems. And not only is Salmon's miraculous birth the perfect fit for this savior motif, he's set apart even more as a Nazarite. From birth, he is never to cut his hair, never to drink any alcohol as a sign of his devotion to God, as a sign of the Spirit's presence and, and favor on his life. Needless to say, Samson's the guy, the one, the anointed of God chosen from birth to finally fix the cycle of the judges, and it's about time because things have been falling apart. And by the end of the chapter, Samson shows up. So we'll finish reading in verse 24. The woman gave birth to a boy and named him Samson. He grew and the Lord blessed him. And the spirit of the Lord began to stir in him. Friends, this is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. The Nazarite son of a barren woman set aside from birth to rescue, to, to bring love and justice and devotion back to the promised land. That's Samson's purpose. 
It's his destiny. And over the next two weeks, I said it was the last judge, but we still got two more weeks. Over the next two weeks, we're going to get a front row seat to what I think is one of the most dramatic and surprising stories in the entire Bible. Right? As so we're going to watch Samson attempt to live into all the expectations that are associated with, with his miraculous birth. Now, I know we're not covering much of this story this week, but we'll get there. And as always, my hope is that we're going to find ourselves in this story. You might end up finding yourself or finding yourself drawn to the people, the Israelites, those who are stuck waiting for 40 years, maybe you've been living in a season of trial, right, or testing, and it's pushed you to the edge. Maybe you've been waiting for 40 days. Maybe it's been 40 hours. It doesn't matter because it, it feels like an eternity when you're stuck waiting. It's a thing, waiting, testing, trials. It's all throughout the scriptures. It's all throughout the human experience, and just because it's everywhere doesn't make it any easier. If you know that feeling of waiting better than you wish, you have a window into the soul of this story. Or maybe you find yourself on the other side of the coin. You see people's pain. You see their trials, their testing, their waiting, confusing, and something's tugging at you deep inside you as if as if you know you've got something to offer. Not that you're a miracle maker or a chosen one, but over time you've come to realize that there's a fire in you, right? that there's a strength in you. You're becoming aware that something's stirring in you. It's, it's a thing. Spirit, giftedness, healing, redemption, it's all throughout scriptures. It's all throughout the human experience. And, and again, just because it's everywhere, it doesn't mean that we all know how to handle our fire, right? how to handle our gifts. So if you know that feeling, you'll have a window into the soul of this story. Or maybe, maybe you're simply looking for a good story, a bit of action, romance, comedy, you're going to have fun. You're going to have fun with Samson. Spoiler alert. As Samson grows up, he realizes he's been endowed with superhuman strength, like, like Hercules or Superman. Samson feels like he comes from a different planet. The story of Samson reads more like a Marvel comic than a sacred text. And in a similar way, Samson has his own kryptonite, his, his own many weaknesses. In fact, the first weakness is women. Samson's a ladies' man, and it's going to get him into trouble multiple times. He's also a gambler. His DraftKings account is going to catch up with him. He's got an anger problem, and it runs deep. And finally, his hair. Like Achilles and his heel, if Samson ever cuts his hair, his superhuman strength will fade. So if you think the Bible's boring, you're not really into poetry or all of those thou shall nots, don't go anywhere. This story's going to be, be good. 
It's like a mini-series within the, the book of Judges. In the meantime, what can we take away from today's text? Is there anything in this first chapter? I figure we've done enough with the cycle of the Judges, and, and over the last couple years, we've read enough stories about visitations of angels and chosen ones being born been there, we've done that. It doesn't mean that they're not special. It just means they're not unique, right? The longer you spend with the Bible, you almost become to expect these stories. What about the whole Nazarite thing? What is that about? Why the no haircuts and the no wine, right? What's the purpose of of such a vow, such a religious showing? Does the Almighty really care how often we go to the barber? Is God that selective that extra blessings would be given to sober dudes with ponytails? Is that how it works? If we go back to its inception in Numbers 6, we read in great detail about how the Nazarite vow was something a man or a woman could make. It's described as a seasonal vow of dedication to the Lord. No alcohol, no razor, and in doing so, they would remain holy until their period of dedication was over, and then they could go back to living life as they knew it. Not truthfully, Samson is the first mention of anyone actually doing a Nazarite vow. In fact, there are only three characters in the entire Bible that are ever said to have become Nazarites. Samson, Samuel, and John the Baptist. And to add to the connection, all three were Nazarite sons of barren women set aside to lead the people back to God. It's good company to be in. But still, what's the point? Why the long hair? Why the no alcohol? I think part of the answer is quite simple. Not drinking And not cutting your hair is inconvenient. It's hard. And it's kind of wild to think that even back then, not drinking was hard. It was something someone had to put their mind to, commit themselves to. It was counter-cultural. And while I've never had long hair, I've got to assume it's more work than what I've got going on. At some point, hair and beard become inconvenient. You see, the magic's not in the hair or the wine. It's in the discipline. It's in the the commitment to see a hard thing through. It's in the practice of self-control for the sake of something other than the self. But I think there's more to it as well. I think there's another layer. Not only is it inconvenient and hard, but it's also public. Maybe even more so for guys. It doesn't take long after putting down a razor for people to start commenting on your face. There's no hiding it, right? There's no pretending you just forgot to shave that year. No trimming, no cleaning up the edges. If you've taken a Nazarite vow to let it grow, people can tell. It's out in the open. And you'd be surprised how often people comment on it, ask you about it, draw attention to it, and question your choices. Honestly, the same thing's true with not drinking. 
If you've ever abstained from alcohol for an extended period of time, you know how true it is. You go to a wedding or an event and the bartender doesn't know what to do with you. All right, it's soda water and lime, I guess. Or you go to a barbecue and you're stuck searching for the kids' cooler, hoping there's more than just juice boxes. And you get asked about it all the time. You don't drink? Why? Are you allergic? Are you an addict? Why would you do that? 4,000 years ago, as much as today, not drinking causes you to stand out in a group. People will comment on it, ask you about it, draw attention to it, and question your choices. And I think that's kind of the point. It's, it's an act of public, purposeful distinction. It's drawing attention uh, to your faith, your devotion, to the things that matter to you. Again, there's no magic in the hair or the wine. It's an inconvenient act of purposeful distinction that serves as a witness of sorts to your devotion. And we don't have many things like that in our faith tradition. We don't practice Nazarite vows or really anything like them, but maybe we should. Maybe we should consider the value of purposeful distinction. Maybe we should question why our faith and devotion doesn't cause us to stand out more. Cards on the table, I don't have a perfect answer to any of these questions, but I ask them all the same. And, and I want you to know I don't ask them at you. I ask them with you, right? As a pastor who loves it, when people are shocked to find out I'm a pastor, right? I wonder if maybe it shouldn't be that shocking. As a community, as a church family, where's our purposeful distinction? What sort of vows of devotion do we make that cause us to, to stand out? The, the best example I could come up with from, from my childhood was simply going to church. Often it felt like as a family we made some sort of vow to go to church. And by go to church, I mean every Sunday morning and almost every Sunday night. It wasn't good or bad. It was just what we did. And, and as a three-sport athlete, it came up all the time. I can't tell you the number of soccer games, basketball games, volleyball matches that I missed because we go to church. And it had nothing to do with sports. We weren't an anti-sport family. It had everything to do with purposeful distinction, right? With keeping the rest of life in check and, and communicating our values. My wife's family did something similar. They even took it one step further. When Julia's family was on vacation somewhere, anywhere, didn't matter where, when Sunday morning rolled around, they'd just find a church and show up. It was purposeful distinction. I don't know what that might be for you. The magic's not in the thing, it's, it's in the choice, the discipline, the, the distinction. And the people around you tell that you're a person of spirit, a person of faith, that you're seeking after God.
So you ready for a crazy idea? I come up with these like every month, so you're used to it. Crazy idea. I think we should try it together. I think we should all become Nazarites of sorts for a season. All right, hear me out. I know it might sound crazy, but I challenge you all to consider a season of purposeful distinction, a season as a Nazarite. This November, we'll call it Nazarite November. Try something, anything. Create for yourself an inconvenient vow that's public, that might draw a little attention from time to time. Maybe it's a month without sugar, a month without makeup, a month without TV, except for football, of course, a month without social media, a month without eating meat, a month without alcohol, or a month without shaving. Maybe it's a month where you add something, like a month of attending worship every Sunday, even if you're on vacation. Maybe it's a month of daily exercise, of daily prayer, of daily writing, encouraging notes. Pick something, anything, something for yourself or something you could try with your whole family. Come up with an inconvenient public vow you can take for Nazarite November a season to focus on what matters, to focus on spirit, on yourself, on the God that is already in you. And let's have some fun with it. I've got ideas for Julie and I. I look forward to dragging our kids through this too. Next week, we're gonna put up a board so you can share your vow. Right outside the sanctuary, we're gonna have a board so you can you and your family can display what your Nazarite vow is to the whole community. Together we'll try something new. Together we'll chase after something bigger than ourselves. And I guarantee you we'll learn something new about ourselves. You never know the inner strength you might find in a season as a Nazarite. You never know what kind of conversations might arise out of your purposeful distinction. Friends, the book of Judges is almost over. Let's go out with a bang. Amen.